Hello, and welcome to the No Man's Land podcast. We are delighted to be here with Daniel Fernkelstein. Daniel, welcome. Thank you. And Steve, welcome, as ever. Thanks, Martin, and welcome, Daniel. Daniel, please begin by introducing yourself to our listeners. Uh, first of all, thank you all for listening. Um, uh, I am Associate Editor of The Times. I'm weekly columnist in that newspaper. And I came to that job having had quite a lot of political experience. I'd worked for uh, John Major as a political advisor, then for William Hague. Uh, and I was a close ally of George Osborne and David Cameron when they set about modernising the party. As a result of that, uh, during David Cameron's premiership, I was put into the House of Lords where I take the Conservative whip. I would describe myself as a Liberal Conservative or a Conservative moderate. In my past, I've uh, actually been on the National Executive of the Social Democratic Party, which gives you a little bit of an idea of my history and uh, my orientation. Brilliant. Thank you very much. I would think it would be really interesting if you could tell us your personal story and why you hold the politics that you do and why specifically that you're a moderate. So the floor is yours. Yeah, I think the story really doesn't start with me, but with my parents. Uh, I'm very much the product of my upbringing. And um, my mother was a uh, victim of the Holocaust. She was uh, ultimately an inmate in Bergen-Belsen. Um, but first of all, she'd been arrested in Holland in 1943. Uh, so she came to this country as a refugee after the war. My father did too. He was born in Lvov. Uh, and became a victim of one of the the less well-known but actually biggest uh, scandals of the uh, wartime era, which was the deportation of more than a million Poles to Siberia and uh, and its environs. And so uh, he was, uh, before the Russians uh, were invaded by the Nazis, uh, a, a an exile in a Siberian state farm. Uh, and they came to this country, met each other here and as a result my politics has very much been built on their belief in the kind of small ideas of Great Britain the kind of suburban stability the bourgeois uh, values of the country um, I was told that my grandfather who'd been in the gulag you know valued Britain because he used to be a a local councillor in Lvov who valued Britain because we could kind of mow the lawns properly uh, he uh, the, the truth is the um, the experience of my parents have made me understand how easy it is for political democracy and uh, the small but important liberties of life to be swept away in fits of political enthusiasm. I've always been on my guard against them. I think that puts it very well, actually, about the importance of moderate politics and something that we are potentially seeing at the moment about how moderate politics seems to be in some cases losing ground to more extreme ideas so what do you think that moderate politics means in practice beyond being able to mow the lawn well um okay so the i suppose the big idea underneath it if if, if you can dignify it with that idea uh, that name uh, is that we live under the rule of law with government limited by law uh, chosen by democratic means, but with protection for the rights of the individual against popular enthusiasms. Uh, that is the undergirding of a, uh, a liberal society um, and one in which protects everybody who lives in it. Um, but alongside it, I think moderates would argue for um, 
small concrete change to make progress rather than the sweeping abstractions of big ideas. Uh, we would argue for um, using the method of rooting out injustice rather than uh, trying to create perfect societies. Uh, we wouldn't disdain the uh, need for uh, compromise, uh, that sometimes you have to meet people in the middle. We don't think that is undignified or, uh, and that to, um, to propitiate interests um, in order to keep everyone on board and everyone willing to abide by the same laws uh, is something, uh, you know, we wouldn't regard that as something that was uh, unacceptable or uh, a, a sort of absence of principle. Uh, so those things are all part of the moderate argument. I definitely uh, think that there's an element of progressive thinking in uh, moderate uh, method because it talks about trying to discover where there are injustices and trying to make progress, uh, recognizing people's individual rights um, as we become more civilized and understand them better. But there's also an element of conservatism because we believe in making small but concrete steps rather than sweeping away structures uh, when we don't know if the alternatives work yet. Steve, do you want to come in? Yeah, yeah. Um, I was listening to what uh, Daniel was saying, and I had a, I had a sort of follow-up question. So I know you mentioned that um, you're a conservative peer, but you were once upon a time involved with the SDP. Do you, do you think there's a difference between being a moderate sort of on the centre-right to being a moderate on the centre-left? Yes. Look, you're starting... It, a very big decision in politics is who is your coalition going to be? Um, and uh, who's, you know... We, 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 you, you have to accept, I accept you quite early on in the SDP in my life, and that was because you know, quite early on I was involved with the SDP. And in the end, trying to create a political party consisting entirely of people that are exactly like me uh, just wasn't going to be big enough. You know, there aren't very many kind of uh, overweight Jewish people from Hendon Central uh, with refugee parents. Uh, if you create a party that really consists demographic it won't be big enough uh, so parts of a bigger group and that undoubtedly means uh picking uh between center left the right and making all compromises with different people um i would have predicted early on in my life that my coalition would be with the center left rather than the center right but i didn't find it a very reliable base for most of my political life um, I've found and noticed that the centre-right had a better fit with the moderate politics I wanted to pursue. I think there's a strand of utopianism in uh, on the left um, that, 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 that kind of jibes against moderation a lot and a, and a strand of pragmatism on the right that accompanies uh, moderation. But it has to be said that that can be tested and it's being tested right now, I think. We, we had a similar conversation with uh, Caroline Flint last week, and um, it was interesting because we asked her similar questions. Um, and I think on most of it, you're in agreement, but the one thing that just stuck out to me is that she said there's nothing necessarily um, not radical about being sort of moderate in the centre, um, which I think is slightly different to what you're saying about uh, focusing on small, concrete changes. Would you accept that? Yeah. Well, I've been you know, calling myself radical and all that sort of stuff because it sounds so good. But it isn't really true, actually, if I'm honest with myself. 
and I, and I don't think it's particularly uh, advantageous. Look, you, what you have to be, I think, is rigorous, um, and and you have to be and and open minded. So you have to recognise that um, the, the the kind of given state of affairs can contain big injustices that you have this uh, and had to be made aware of and had to challenge your prejudice, link them through. So in that sense, uh, I think a moderate standpoint does require not so much um, a radical nature, but a, but a, a fight against complacency, because I think complacency can be a failing of moderation. So I think that is a challenge. Uh, but, but do I believe in a radical change? No, I believe in steady, um, progressive, uh, workable improvements. And that's the way that I think change is best done. Sometimes the, 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 the steps can be bold ones, um, but never uh, leaps into the unknown, I think. Thanks. So that's all sort of very, very good at, uh, at one level. But what does it really mean in practice? So given that your your own extensive involvement in a political party, in this case, the Conservatives, what does your moderate politics mean day-to-day, -day, your incremental change, your sort of progressive but steady improvement based on rigour? What are some of the issues that you've sort of had experience of doing and some of the, the, the times you've been able to, to frame a real issue by taking a sort of moderate approach? Gay, gay rights was, a, was a, such an issue, uh, always, um, where an obvious, you know, it became clear that there was an obvious injustice and we began to open our eyes to its nature uh, and we therefore began to make step-by-step -step changes uh, beginning with the legalization of homosexuality through to full equality through to gay marriage um, one step after another in the right direction each a concrete step each bringing liberty and within a very you know in a fairly compact in terms of human political history time we moved from you know a position where uh, gay rights didn't exist at all because people were because homosexuality was illegal to one where uh, gay people can marry and have full uh, civil liberties and there are still obviously things we need to tackle and think of and all over the world that battle hasn't been won yet at all um, and that's an example and an example I'm dealing with now at the, uh, at the moment one of my sort of causes is assisted dying uh, where there's a settled view in the country that we ought to make some progress on it and I think there's room for a moderate um, but a workable step forward, um, not a leap on the on the issue with lots of guarantees, but a moderate step forward. So there are lots of times where I think you can make moderate improvements, uh, and um, sometimes moderates will differ from each other on what is the correct pace, on what is the correct issue to concentrate on. Um, I, you know, I, I'm sure that, for example. Um, cannabis legalization is an issue like that where moderate people can differ uh, but what i but i think it's obvious uh, but i think there's a big difference between stressing those sorts of issues and say for example saying what we need to do is replace capitalism uh, with socialism without necessarily knowing what that even means um, which is primarily destructive because uh, it knows what it wants to get rid of but doesn't know what it wants to replace it with one of the um, and Danny, one of the things I think people on the left might say to some of that, and I'm, I think I'm, I'm mostly agreeing with you. So I'm, I'm sort of playing devil's advocate here, um, but they might say it's not a good thing it took so long. For example, on 
on, on gay rights to, to catch up and would be better moving fast on that issue. I think that's harder to argue on something like sister dying, but do you have a response to that kind of line of argument as to why it is, is better to go slowly rather than move quickly? It isn't necessarily best to go slow. I was always in favour of moving as fast as possible, but it was, it, we, we had to actually take people with us in order to win this change. Um, and, um, you know, my argument for much of history, by the way, people on the left weren't in favour of gay rights at all, right? It's a fairly um, modern cause. And um, and I think that you've got to, to win consent for the measures that you are putting in place. Otherwise, um, you won't get, you won't win through with them to start off with, but you also may not be able to keep them. Um, so I'm not saying that, um, you know, I'm not against change uh, and I'm not saying that you always have to move incrementally, but I think it's my chosen method and I, and I think it's usually more successful. And, and indeed, I think almost all reforms, successful reforms, have it's for women did as well. Look, that's an absolute issue, right? So, so is the franchise. Um, but the franchise took a hundred years to change from, you know, from, from, um, you know, between 1832 and 1929, there were vast changes in the franchise. And you could have said, sure, that the right thing to do was to uh, do the whole thing at the beginning, but there wasn't the political support for that. So I'd like to move on to how electorally successful and in terms of its wider sort of political popularity, moderate politics is. You wrote a piece recently saying that moderates still win. But given that populism is fairly electorally successful in the US, arguably in the UK, and certainly across lots of mainland Europe, how successful, how popular is moderate politics at the moment, both historically and currently? You don't win everything, but I'm still very confident that in, uh, mo on most occasions when uh, there is a uh, an election, the the sort of moderate centre party uh, holds a big advantage. It depends on how the electoral system is uh, is created. And my my rule really related to British elections. Um, but I think on the whole, um, people do have a sort of instinct about fitness to govern, which is pretty uh, important. Certainly in Britain, it has been very successful. Uh, and generally speaking, the party that has moved closer to adopting the centre, to co-opting the centre, has tended to win elections. It doesn't happen in every country always, but it happens a remarkable amount of time in most elections. Look, you know, we're talking before the United States election, and many people may be listening to this podcast after the United States election. So we're about to have a big test, I think, of... Um, Many of the populist arguments, you know, there's enthusiasm gap between populists and moderates. Um, there is, uh, you can't even, you know, you can't even poll uh, populist opinion because it won't uh, deal with conventional uh, pollsters. Um, there's a kind of instinctive understanding of the spirit of the country that resides with populists. Um, we're about to test whether those things happen. I, I'm taking a risk in saying them because it's possible that uh, Donald Trump will win the election rather than Joe Biden, and uh, therefore uh, it'll it'll um, I think uh, suggest that those arguments of populists are correct. 
but if Joe Biden wins, it will suggest that they were not correct. So I don't want to try to put you on the, on the spot rather about the US election, but what are some of the challenges to the sort of moderate politics that you espouse? And we've talked about how long things take to, to be realised. But isn't that one particular legitimate critic that it's all very well for, let's say, a, a conservative lord to say that, well, we shouldn't think about upsetting the apple cart, things should happen, you know, in course. But for some of the people who feel less, um, have less of a stake in society, isn't the case that the case that actually moderate politics has not been as successful for them as for some others? Do you think that's a, those and other sort of criticisms of that moderate politics are legitimate? No, I wasn't born a, um, a, either a conservative or a lord. Um, uh, and, you know, I told you my, 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 my background story. My father came to this country, he had absolutely nothing. He'd had a few weeks of uh, training at a, uh, a, a secondary school in the Turkestan, Kazakhstan Railway School. Uh, and um, he, uh, and then he'd come to this country having gone through uh, Persia first. And um, when they came to this country, my grandfather died. They had no money at all. They were uh, living on welfare benefits. And um, the, uh, so I completely understand, um, you know, from their story um, that people start from, you know, you can start from quite poor positions. But the truth is for, um, for most people, um, the best way of emerging, of, of, of ameliorating those conditions or, and of emerging out of them uh, is a strong welfare state which supports people uh, when, when, they, when they need support and a uh, consumer-based market economy. Uh, and, um, and that requires two things, the stability uh, that a market economy requires in order to operate, uh, support for the rule of law and civil liberties without which uh, it doesn't work, and a uh, progressive-minded um, concern about um, how well the worst off are doing. Um, it is precisely because I believe that um, something um, that that the sort of system we have got has got within it uh, the capacity to grow and change in ways that support people who are less well off and gives them a chance for greater success uh, that I um, that I hold the view that I do, right? It's precisely because I think that's it works um, precisely for those people. So do, does it worry you, as I have a feeling you so it does, that the, the growth of populists on the left and right, we've talked about the US, but we've also seen Corbyn and a Corbyn-led Labour Party in the UK that don't hold some of the norms and values that you do around place for market economy, the importance of law and order. In fact, your own parties openly admitted and explicitly admitted that it tends to break international law. So does it worry you that some of these things are under threat? And how do you think that moderates should respond to some of these challenges? Oh, it worries me a lot. So let me concentrate on the, the, the um, more difficult things. It's easy for me to talk about Jeremy Corbyn. I'm very distressed at the idea that a Conservative government might think about breaking the law, might regard it as 
being acceptable to say that it would break the law, um, might think that it was reasonable to try to pass laws that um, break treaty obligations that we've freely entered into. Uh, because if the law, rule of law doesn't exist, um, nothing, uh, nothing that conservatives want to protect can possibly be protected. And so, um, yes, I'm very worried about that. And I, I, my opposition to Jeremy Corbyn was not that I felt that he, um, you know, wanted to uh, do good for the worst off, and I didn't really want that because I'm a plutocrat. It was, <laughs> it was because I think that um, he, his view about uh, the sort of society that we should live in uh, was a sort of ill-formed, abstract idea of a socialist society that starts by kind of destroying capitalism then wakes up and wonders what to put in its place uh, and I that is not a method I approve of. So going on to some of the more specific challenges how do you think moderates should respond to for example Brexit? So Brexit and the response to it indeed that's the reason we a large part of the reason we set up this podcast and blog the response to Brexit is surely a perfect example of the failings of both moderates and moderate politics in general. So how would you like to approach the issue of Brexit? And are there any other issues, for example, COVID, that you think might be good examples of how moderates and moderate politics can bring people together? Okay, first of all, there's not a single moderate uh, position on Brexit or on COVID, right? There are lots of positions um, that, um, you know, a moderate would say, uh, let's concentrate on concrete things that can work. Let's uh, ensure that we're rigorous about scientific evidence uh, and follow that evidence, um, although you know, that can still lead to a range of different, different political decisions. Uh, a moderate would, again, prefer um, to have um, some form of, of, of uh, concrete change to an abstract sweeping change. Very important. Moderates also believe in losers' consent in elections. Uh, so my view uh, was that I opposed the um, the idea of leaving the European Union, um, but I thought there was a there could be moderate uh, moderates who didn't agree with me. Uh, but once we'd had a referendum, uh, I thought it was um, right that we should implement the result of the referendum. Uh, but I also thought that Parliament had the right to determine in what form our future relationship with the European Union uh, took. Um, I was very distressed when we got to the position when uh, the government was neither uh, able to have uh, to pass its deal nor to call a general election. I thought that was a extremely dangerous uh, position to be in. Um, but in the end, it was settled through a general election. What's your own personal view? What's the sort of Brexit you would have liked to have seen on a personal level? Well, look, I, I, I'm open about this. I don't think uh, that there is a Brexit that um, that works, right? I think that I think that without any question, we are we are gaining concrete. We're giving away concrete economic advantage in return for abstract advantages, right? So I um, was of the view that. Uh, once we'd agreed to leave the European Union, it didn't make much sense to be in the single market because when we were in the single market, 
we would be rule takers in a market which we were uh, not, um, you know, which we, we which we were not able to determine the rules of. I didn't think that was really a tenable position. Um, so I, I feel that what Brexit probably does mean is a free trading arrangement um, with the European Union of the kind that we're trying to negotiate now. Um, I think it'll make us less well off, but I think that's what Brexit meant. I don't think as a long-term arrangement, this country can be in a, um, in a, in a single market, the rules of which it cannot, it can't determine. I just think that's not practical. Um, so, but that's, that's only one position. There are lots of, there's a, there's a, there were kind of moderate alternatives, uh, to, uh, moderates who, who believe that we should be part of the, uh, I've got friends who believe this very strongly that we should, you know, the sort of midway point was to be in the European um, economic area, and I thought of thought that made sense in terms of a compromise to, so that we wouldn't all be angry with each other. But I'm not sure it was a tenable long-term arrangement, unfortunately. Okay, so let's move on to COVID. So you wrote a piece in the Times saying that uh, Johnson, as Prime Minister, should uh, keep Starmer as a leader of the opposition, close when making arrangements for COVID. Can you explain what you meant in your column? Yes. Um, look, there are, every decision that we make about COVID has got a plausible alternative. And I gave some examples in that column. I, um, uh, we could have easily, um, you know, you, you can say, right, um, let's uh, keep the schools open and close down the hospitality sector. And everyone immediately goes, well, why are you keeping the schools open when they're going to be spreading the virus much more in the hospitality sector. So you then close the schools, uh, but open the hospitality sector, and everyone goes, I can't believe that you're opening the pubs while you're closing down our education. You open both, the virus spreads, you close both, everyone says it's uh, like a draconian lockdown. Everyone is basically can be against anything uh, that they want. So my view is that if you're going to make very big decisions about people's civil liberties, you have to do it on the basis of national consent. These are not normal political times. We're not making normal political decisions. And if you want people to abide by what are really very big restrictions to people's freedoms, uh, then you need to have broad political support for it. So my suggestion was that on matters to do with uh, COVID, that Keir Starmer might be included in the decision-making process and have collective responsibility for the outcome. Because otherwise, what happens is what is indeed happening. You know, the government says A and the opposition then says B and it undermines uh, people's willingness to do A when we need voluntary compliance with it. So um, I don't blame Keir Starmer for that. I think that it's perfectly reasonable of him to see his job as to, to advocate B when the government advocates A uh, because he's the leader of the opposition. But I think we sh he shouldn't be being the opposition during this period. And that's for the government to to set about uh, correcting, not him. So do you think he's doing something that's completely fair enough critiquing a decision he hasn't had any involvement Absolutely. in? Or do you think he's playing politics at a time of national crisis? Um, no, I think he's absolutely within his rights to, um, to set out alternatives, given that he was not involved in the setting of the policy. If he'd been involved in the setting of the policy, he would have been able to make these points before the policy was set. Uh, and um, then he can take some sort of part in them in some sort of responsible way. And perhaps the government will move towards his position or he'd have pushed his position. Um, if you don't include him, he's bound to, to uh, then come out for alternative 
um, with an alternative view. And I think that's a shame, uh, but I don't blame him for that at all. Steve, did you have a question you wanted to come in on? Yeah, if I may, I wanted to segue a little bit um, on the other kind of big set of issues I think that's happened in the last few months, which has been, I think you're sort of describing the identity politics issues. So a few months ago, we had the Black Lives Matter protests. We've had various rows about uh, gender and transgender and things like that. Um, and actually, Brexit, in a way, became this very totemic kind of cultural type issue. Um, but one thing we talked about a lot on the podcast is whether or sort of how one can find a moderate sort of tone on these very divisive uh, sort of social issues. I just wondered, um, Daniel, if you had any thoughts about how, how that or if it can be done. Yeah, I tried it in my book. I had uh, an essay that I wrote on Winston Churchill um, some time ago, in which I argued that um, uh, you could, you know, my family experience led me to say that um, Winston Churchill was a great man. Uh, but that didn't mean that I couldn't didn't acknowledge the truth about him, which was that he was a racist. Um, and I, I learned just how people feel, because when that piece appeared online, uh, it had the headline, Winston Churchill was a racist, but he was a great man. Uh, whereas what I was really saying was Winston Churchill was a great man, but he was a racist, subtly different. Uh, and I've had many, many tens of thousands of retweets of my of the headline implying that I basically didn't mind Winston Churchill's racist, which is the opposite of my point. And it shows you how dialogue can get. My view and the view that expressed in that article and a number of other profiles that are made in in, in everything in moderation in the book um, is that just because somebody um, is a uh, has got something to be said for them that's negative doesn't mean there's also not something positive and vice versa. I, I did this very interesting project um, of reading uh, one book on every prime minister. Um, and when people have asked me, you know, who do you, who was the best person? I always say, well, there wasn't a single person in that entire list with 55 prime ministers uh, about whom you could say, well, they were never wrong. Uh, every single person was wrong in a big way. And if we insist, if we make the test of, you know, are, is somebody estimable, they never made a mistake, then nobody's estimable. Um, but at the same time, I don't think we should go with the idea that um, because someone's estimable, uh, we must assume, we must make them never wrong in our heads. Uh, we've got to be able to accept the faults of the people that we uh, respect and admire. And so um, some of the culture war is designed by saying, uh, you know, you, you, you can't have a statue of Winston Churchill and also believe he was a racist and that Britain has got to re-examine some of its imperialist past and he didn't do so. Well, you can, you can think those things at the same time. And um, what I'm against is not cultural examination or even cultural dispute, but war is completely unnecessary and it's being waged by uh, people to sort of squeeze out where most people are which is which is with nuance and complexity. That's, that's sort of reassuring so let's take that as a segue into the US election. So I won't ask you to make a prediction there's been a lot of votes cast already but we won't know the outcome for some time. So what do you think might be some of the important factors in it and what are your thoughts more generally on the state of play of US politics at the moment? Well, I'm very distressed by what's happened in the United States because, um, you know, we've lived since the Second World War in a kind of Pax Americana. Uh, and um, I sort of feel as though 
uh, that kind of great moral lead for the world, even though it was always there'd always there were always big questions about the United States because of segregation and other problems with it. But that great big moral lead that it gave uh, to the and leadership it gave to the free world, it really hasn't done. Uh, and um, uh, you know, is it kind of lost its way a bit? Um, and I've I've felt very worried to see um, you know the United States kind of battling out some of its uh, political uh, disputes on the streets rather than uh, in the ballot box, and to see the kind of growth of of really kind of rigid orthodoxies and uh, on both sides. But the more encouraging thing is through it all, there is actually is a strong centrist current. I think that's where most people are really. Um, and well, we'll see what the result is. Um, it, it, it may be that um, that wasn't that that kind of centrist current was not enough. Um, but I'm, you know, I'm kind of hopeful that it, it is. So, what forces do you think have acted to undermine that sort of moral leadership that you you speak about? So, I know that, so that for example, the Labour Party historically have looked to the um, American liberalism as a bastion against Soviet communism and as a preferable way to go. So I think it, it's concerning that you mentioned about having lost that sort of moral leadership role, especially given the underwriting of defence spending by America as part of NATO. But what do you think are the sort of the factors that under, underplay that and cause that and that have caused the American voters to turn away from that sort of um, political legacy in such that the most important thing uh, is uh, is is economic growth always. So, in my view, the underpinning of a liberal, moderate, progressive society is a stable market economy. And um, when the economy doesn't work for everyone, you will get it will undermine um, radical. Uh, it'll undermine uh, stable solutions, right? um, and um, I think that that's what we've seen in the United States. You know, the growth of um, a feeling of by a lot of kind of white working class people that the economy doesn't working for them, uh, and looking for alternatives and people to blame, which has turned out to be people who are um, you know from ethnic minorities and. Uh, therefore, saying that's to do with a kind of woke rebellion. Uh, on the other hand, a kind of um, uh, this kind of rigid liberal orthodoxy, which has developed to oppose that, and that's been these have been very uh, distressing developments, I think. Um, but the most important, the best way out of it is through economic growth. One question, I think. Um, I mean, assuming Biden does win tomorrow, um, one question we might be asking ourselves is whether that sort of fixes the the sort of things that we've spoken about for the last four years that were undercurrent of populism or not. I mean, there might be a temptation in some quarters to say, well, in America, certainly, well, that's done now. Um, I think others will say, well, this is just a sticking plaster. There's more to come. Um, I don't really not, I'm not really sure I have a great answer for, for that, but I wonder if, um, if you do. My view is that, um, is that the most important thing the United States can do is to recover uh, its economic um, position and also to ensure that everybody gets a chance to share in those economic uh, in, in economic growth. You can't have a situation in which 
but you know large classes of people are left out of it and i think the united states has to revisit its view that um you know kind of welfare state politics are something for europeans and not for them uh i think that's just a mistake and i think ultimately it'll lead to more you know it'll lead to greater and greater uh, disaffection and that's you know seriously problematic do you think it's a failing of the free market then that it, there needs to be greater intervention by the state to specifically address the failings of the market um yes i think the, the state the, the the state has to address some of the failings of the market yeah we um and i've always believed that i'm not i'm not a i'm not a uh, libertarian uh, an economic libertarian I think that, um, and I think you know, COVID demonstrates quite clearly that uh, the need for um, governments to step in when markets can't work as fully and as well as they as we want for various different reasons, of which this is one. Um, so I, I strongly, and I, I and I think the United States has um, has not the level of social support that it needs. Um, that's slightly, you know, that's coming in it slightly as an outsider, but I think that's part, that's one of the reasons for they've got economic, they've got social problems. Okay, so finally, what I'd like to take your, um, or to hear your take on the EHRC's report into anti-Semitism mm -hmm. Labour Party. So the report came out last week, as we speak, and found a number of failings in the Labour Party's handling of anti-Semitism, including and harassment and political interference in the process. So what's your take on a Labour Party led by Jeremy Corbyn on the issue of anti-Semitism in British politics, especially on the left? Um, look, I, I, my feeling was primarily one of relief I, uh, because, you know, after a while you begin to feel that maybe you're going a bit mad. The, 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 the level of denial that this was a problem inside Labour when it seemed completely obvious to most mainstream members of the Jewish community who people who were not already so ultra committed to Jeremy Corbyn's worldview that they weren't really prepared to accept any criticism of his position um, or okay let's put it a little bit more fairly who were hugely resistant to any criticism of his position uh, it seemed obvious that there was a serious problem and it, and it was amazing to me and it was obviously amazing even to someone like John McDonnell that Jeremy Corbyn would re refuse to grip it and deal with it and that it should have come to this is really quite extraordinary uh, so um, I, I think that um, the anti-semitism that rose in the Corbyn era was a kind of offshoot of his of his slightly odd Marxist politics. He was a, uh, honestly odd, I mean non-mainstream. He was not a conventional left social democrat. Uh, he's somebody who is an anti-imperialist Leninist. And I don't mean that in a, in a sort of, to throw around the name of Lenin in some sort of insulting way. I, I think analytically that's what he was. Lenin believed that uh, the capitalist economy floated on the profits made by the exploitation of colonial uh, of colonial properties um, and that the route to um, destroying capitalism uh, and the socialist uh, commonwealth uh, was by supporting uh, anti-colonial resistance movements. Um, this led the, to two things. One was um, the incredible stressing on the idea of Israel as this sort of occupying power despite the fact that it's a tiny country um, uh, and um, with a 
accommodatable demands, in my view. Um, and and then the, the second thing, which Mr. I think probably Jeremy Corbyn wouldn't uh, subscribe to, but this idea that they're a group of uh, controlling capitalists who are often associated with Jews, who uh, who were kind of ruling the world and manipulating uh you know, and, and playing Monopoly on the backs of the poor, which was the picture that uh, that Mir one drew uh, painted on the wall that Jeremy Corbyn couldn't see a problem with. Um, so uh, these were two parts of this uh, anti-imperialist analysis, and he um, he subscribed to that, and he couldn't see why this led a lot of people who joined following it and who maybe were not capable of his political subtlety um, to become to, to, to make anti-Semitic statements uh, and so it just went on and on and he refused to deal with it and he even now you know even after it came out he still refused to deal with it he joined with those people who chose to deny that that was a problem and um, I'm glad that Keir Starmer did what he did I, I'm shocked that it's come to that because I couldn't believe that at any point Jeremy Corbyn wouldn't perceive that whatever his own way of viewing the situation, it wasn't actually how most other people saw it, how most people in the general public saw it, how an independent body like the EHRC, uh, you know, how, uh, saw it, they couldn't see that. So what, what do you mean by his political subtlety? Um, well, I'm saying that, uh, you know, he's a politically sophisticated individual himself. Even he, by the way, has several times made, you know, the kind of errors like the, the irony comment, like supporting the mural, um, like giving a, an introduction to Hobson's book. Um, so he has several times himself done things which, um, uh, you know, certainly are very concerning. Um, how could he not understand that his politics wouldn't pull in people who who were who weren't capable even of that level of restraint, and who would do things like have a, a Jew being like an octopus over the face of the uh, Statue of Liberty? And when that happened, they didn't deal with it, uh, and it was bound to happen if you have the kind of politics that Jeremy Corbyn has. He wouldn't do that because he can see that that's not right himself. Um, but even he made the mistake of being quite tolerant of it when Mir One did such an obviously anti-Semitic thing and he didn't spot it himself. And so what I'm saying is, if he did it, he must understand that it was likely to be quite a big problem and he wasn't rigorous about it. So we let, it led to this very big uh, anti-Semitism crisis in the party and still he couldn't see it. Okay, so I suppose just to, to, to finish that. So do you think that the issue has now been sort of banished and that kind of politics, which, I mean, arguably has a blind spot for anti-Semitism. Do you think that kind of politics has now been sort of defeated in the UK and that the left under Starmer will sort of return to a more moderate force? No, although I do think, I don't think, I don't think you can ever say something's been defeated forever and it'll go away, but yeah, I do think, um, I, I always felt that Jeremy Corbyn had the support of a lot of people who didn't really understand what his politics were. They 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 saw him, you know, perfectly reasonably as a kind of um, uh, generous-minded person who wanted radical change, and they were, uh, you know, and who was kind of big-hearted about the 
poor people and you know they, and they felt that you know he didn't just go along with business like tony blair i could i could understand and he was peace loving all those things i would argue with some of those things but i understood why pe why people were attracted to it but what they didn't understand is his politics were a bit more complicated than that that they that him and john mcdonald came from outside the mainstream social democratic tradition of the labor party and that even people who were quite left-wing on a social democratic spectrum were not the same as John McDonnell and Jeremy Corbyn. So um, I think that he got elected uh, with a, a, a majority that gave people the wrong impression about where the forces really were of alignment inside the Labour Party. Uh, and um, that's why, you know, Keir Starmer's managed to remove him. And I think um, this may prove too long, but I think Keir Starmer's probably going to succeed with that move, that, 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 he, that the NEC won't force him to back down. He may choose later to, to compromise, but he, he won't be forced to back down because ultimately I don't think the forces of the left and the Labour Party are as strong as people estimated they were. Do you think that sometimes parties see their, their outside wing, as it were, as the sort of the pure and the, the better and the, the centre is a sort of nasty necessary compromise yes, in the same way that the, the Labour Party, the, the left and we saw it with Corbyn, that sometimes people go, oh, I just, I'm sick of compromise, I just want to be pure hearted and that's where, where that explains Corbyn. So yeah, do you think that's something that's shared elsewhere? Yeah, I always remember there's, there's a phrase that I love where people go, you know, we can say what we like about him, but at least he says what he thinks. And saying what you think is like the easiest thing in the world. Um, anybody can say what they think. The key thing is to try and bring people with you and to make meaningful social progress. Um, and that requires compromise with other people's points of view. Uh, it requires building consensus. It requires um, making small steps when you would rather make bigger ones or resisting bigger ones sometimes um, when, when you think they're not uh, sensible or don't maintain social consent. These, these are, um, you don't always get the judgments right, but these, that's the challenge for moderate people. And I think it's you know, very easy for people to just sweep that away and say, you know, well, we, you know, let's just do what we think uh, and, and never mind what anyone else thinks. Well, Daniel, thank you so much for, um, for your time. That seems like an excellent uh, place to end it. Would you just like to, um, to tell us the name of your book and uh, yeah. a little bit more about it? So I hope people will find it um, entertaining and interesting. It's a book called Everything in Moderation. It's a it's col selected columns of mine from the time since 2005. I've been quite careful to select ones that last, that don't refer back just to, uh, you know, expired political situations and require you to have arcane knowledge of what uh, Ruth Kelly uh, thought about Opus Dei. Um, I, I hope that people will find it enjoyable. It ranges from... Um, big pieces of political principle, some discussion of my parents' background, some of my views on the suburbs, but also a lot of essays about things like Walt Disney, George Martin, Brian Epstein, um, Nelson Mandela, Margaret Thatcher, um, hopefully, uh, uh, and there's also some you know, humorous essays as well. So hopefully people will find it um, enjoyable and it'll cover some of the topics that we talked about because through it runs my uh, a sort of uh, uh, a strand of my moderate uh, politics and my take, my moderate take on a lot of political issues over the last 15 years. Great. Thank you very much, Daniel. That's been an absolute pleasure to have you on. So thank you very much for your time. Thank you, Steve, as ever, thank you for your time.
Thanks, Martin, and uh, thanks for joining us, Daniel. All the best. Brilliant. Thank you very much, and to our listeners as well, I hope you've enjoyed it. This has been the No Man's Land podcast. Thank you, and goodbye.